funny hearing that theme coming out of the Claypool Lennon delirium. <laughs> uh, I've mentioned on the show before that I'm a bit of a Primus fan, so I find that album really interesting. I was really excited to see we had it. Mm-hmm. It's weird. And yeah, speaking yeah. of weird, we've got a pretty heavy show today. Well, what show are we, Jake? Well, we are the Art Support on CITR 101.9 FM, Own Your Frequency, broadcasting from the unceded territory of the Musqueam people on UBC campus. Mm-hmm. Lovely day today. And uh, what better way to celebrate a bright and cheery day than to deal with, you know, depression, mental illness, uh-huh. you know, uh, amputation, profanity, you know, all the things that constitute a lot of people, you know, tribulations in life. So uh, content warning for all of that and, uh, and more. I mean, double content warning if you consider activism triggering. We're going to get on that in a little bit. Mm-hmm. That's where we're going to close out the show. Uh, and first things first, it is that time of year again. It is time for Beckett 17. And Ooh. we both we both had a great time at Beckett 16 last we had year. A, we had a really great time. Um, I really enjoyed uh, seeing all the different shorts. I know uh, this year at UBC, when they're opening their season with something a little more longer, so it's not one of their shorter uh, plays, but uh, it's going to be a longer one by Beckett. Happy days. Yeah, and I was very surprised to hear that it did not at all include the fawns. <laughs> but there is a great story to go with it because I actually interviewed Gerald Vanderwood, who will be directing the show and who has played a very great part in Beckett 16 and many mm-hmm. of the UBC, many of the episodes in UBC's very interesting relationship with Samuel Beckett. And uh, here's the interview. This is The Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM, broadcasting from the unceded territory of the Musqueam people on UBC campus. And joining me today is our special guest, Gerald Vanderwood, here to talk to us about Beckett 2017, Happy Days. Thanks. Thanks for having me. CITR actually has a long history with uh, the work that we've done with our little theater alumni group back 17 years ago when we started our little Beckett birthday bashes. We were doing a production of Rockabye, and Anna Frizz was actually one of the hosts of a cultural program at that time at CITR, and she was uh, good enough to come in and let us record, actually, in CITR studios, so it's nice to be back. We recorded all of uh, Rockabye in the old CITR studios in the old sub. The name that comes up regarding Beckett birthday bash is been frequently Peter Loeffler. Oh, yeah. uh, especially the UBC interviewed you last year regarding his influence on Beckett 16, which described as like a bowling party for yeah. actors. Yeah. Would you say that this jovial tone from the birthday party to the bowling night is carried through now? Always. I mean, uh, the whole point of doing, uh, of all of us coming together, we were all taught by Peter. We all have a connection to Peter. And really, it's, it's, it's a celebration of theater more than anything else. Beckett is not something that's performed very often. And Peter and I had a special affinity for the work of Beckett. Uh, we talked a lot about it. We saw the world through the Beckettian 
lens in a way. And as a result, uh, when, when Peter passed away, we really did want to continue on the tradition and keep it going. And so doing Beckett was a way of doing that, bringing the alumni together back to the Freddie Wood Theatre, working with the staff and the students. Students make a part of the show as well. We try to incorporate them as much as possible into the show. Those are all the kinds of things that Peter really, really enjoyed. He said theatre should be for those who do it. And we really take that on and say, yeah, we'll risk everything. We'll work hard for the enjoyment of theatre. That's really why we do it. When you say Beckettian lens, one would believe that comes across a certain bleakness of world <laughs> with, with like with Waiting for Godot, um, espe- especially Endgame, on yeah. which you did your, your thesis. These plays approach it with this joviality. Would that be you? Would that be Loeffler? Or would that be something you see in Beckett? Well, I think I see it in Beckett. I think Beckett is very funny. I think sometimes uh, sometimes folks can take the view that it's sort of a museum theater, but it's not that at all. Um, Beckett's really at his best when he's funny. It's dark humor at times, and certainly he really looks at the absurdity of life. And so it's in that absurdity of those moments where, you know, even now you and I are sitting in a recording studio. We're sitting in front of microphones and all the rest of it. It's a bit of an absurd bit of business uh, as we communicate to the world. But we're in a relationship right now, and those are the kinds of things that you find humor in, and it's an interesting part of your day in that way. And uh, again, Endgame is my, my personal favorite Beckett yeah, play. Yeah, it's his best. And with that, there is this bit of situational humor where there's an attendant who can't sit and a, a master who can't stand. Is there that kind of humor in Happy Days? Is it a similar set up because it's very notable for this, the design with which it's presented which if I recall correctly was Jocelyn Herbert. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Is it a similar setup to Endgame in that regard? Uh, all of Beckett's plays have echoes of each other in them. You, you always find little similarities and it's that's kind of actually the fun part when you're directing them is every time you direct a Beckett production you gain knowledge and insight into some other production that he's done or some other play that he's written and uh, so they all build on each other. There is certainly elements of a, a relationship between Ham and Clove that is similar to Winnie and Willie. But the, you know, there's a big difference in the sense that it's a, it is gender. You know, the, the lead in this case is a woman. It's not a man, uh, unlike um, Ham in, in Endgame. And in fact, in many of his plays, uh, although towards the later stuff, when he was bringing in Rockabye and so forth, uh, women characters took on uh, more promise with Billy Whitelaw as well, I suppose, because she was such a, a great performer. Many of the parts were written for her. Many of the parts were written for her, and uh, certainly she suited the work as Beckett would say but um, yeah no it, there are certainly similarities in the relationship it's a relationship between two people who are essentially stuck in a situation uh, much like Ham and Clove were uh, back in Endgame. The interesting thing what fascinates me about Beckett is a sort of the sense of stasis because that was also what Rick Clutchy saw in him mm. that's why he was very popular in prisons he could still be I'm not sure do you think that applicability comes across in other places is that is it universal to, as today as it was then? Oh I really think so with Beckett I think the the mastery of Beckett, uh, he's very he's like Shakespeare in some ways. It just continues on every time you see it. It it gets translated for the modern audience by the audience. I mean, one of the issues, one of the things about Beckett, I think that's so strongly about is that it is really an experience that not only the actors are going through on the stage, but the audience as well. And because of that, it's core to Beckett's work. You are moving through something. Something is happening on that stage. You're not quite sure what it is. From a directing point of view, the challenge is really to try to create an experience that is specific for actors so they're playing something specific but not too defined if you define something in Beckett it loses its reverberance I guess you would say because it's most it's almost like a poetic expression you want to try and make every audience member have their own experience in that way I think work of Beckett's is most closest to music it's most like either they can be a uh, end game is more like a chamber piece I think happy days having sat with it for eight months as I have it's more of a symphony really she is a fantastic 
soloist, but in a giant symphony of, of silence in many ways. And her voice is the soloist breaking against the silence of that symphony. Beckett did love music, apparently. He, um, yeah, you can see that. Piano player, wasn't he? There is, there is mathematics in Beckett. There is a great musicality. And the most important thing about Beckett, really, I think, is the rhythm of, this, of the piece. I mean, it's very specific. I think in Happy Days, I think I counted, there was 300 and some odd pauses. And you would think to yourself well, okay, surely you can't play all 300 and some odd pauses. What's interesting about it is when you deviate from the stage directions in a Beckett play, you're fighting against a current. And it's good to deviate for a while in the rehearsal room. But then once you've done that, you sort of filled out a moment of the character's life. And then you go back and you take a look and say, well, what did Beckett say? And if you follow the stage direction, you'll actually find yourself going through a doorway to a deeper meaning, really, of the play. It's quite an intriguing process that way. I mean, it's you're, there's a sort of infinity behind Beckett that you're trying to strive towards at all times but the journey never ends and that's kind of baked into the play when you watch it as an audience member you are carried along but you're never sure is it the end is this the final day is this the last time these characters or are they going to wake up tomorrow and go again and again and again and is it ever perpetuating much like you know yourself and I when we get up every day we we put on our clothes we go to work and it just continues on so that kind of idea behind it there's all those influences that he bakes into his plays I uh, can't go on I'll go on yeah exactly yeah. Yeah. With that minimalism involved, would you say that the study of Beckett, at least you and your wife have been at it for 19 years, yeah. <laughs> your wife is undergoing, uh, Miss, uh, Miss Bardal is undergoing a project with Rockabye that will culminate when she's three quarters of a century. That's right. Is there a certain point where the knife hits bone with the minimalism, or could you go the other way? Is there a way to make a maximalist Samuel Beckett production? I know. I think really it's about distillation, really. I mean, you are cook in a kitchen. You're constantly reducing the sauce back down to its very, very, very economic elements. <laughs> you really want to boil it down. That's I see it all as reduction. The more you put in, the trickier it gets. And the more you're actually going to end up either defining chaos, in which case then the play falls away as well, right? You, I think of the plays really as a box. And I think of the work as the artist in that box is we're a balloon. And we've got to try to push the balloon to the edges of the box as far as we can. And that you keep getting closer to that edge, but you never quite... It's, it's that you want to hit that sweet spot where you're inside the frame of Beckett and you've maximized that world inside of that box and that's kind of how I look at it. Some people like to break it. Some people like to say no we're going to change Beckett. I think you do so you have to be very much aware of what you're losing when you change Beckett in any way shape or form or if you go with a maximalist approach. I think it's really about paring it down to the very bare essence so that the experience can then unfold for the audience at that point. And with a piece like say well Breathe the shortest play ever written. Breath. Breath. <laughs> okay yeah well, that's probably the just this bare bones attempt to make an experience without anything else there, I'm guessing. Is well, it supposed to it, do that? It started say? as a breath origins really began as yeah, it began as um, as kind of a joke uh, for Old Calcutta. I don't know if you know Old Calcutta. I do not. Well, it's a play, it was on Broadway and a friend sort of asked you know, can you write us a little curtain teaser kind of thing? And I think at the time I, and this is my supposition I, you know, I, you could read up on it more and so forth, but uh, Beckett just sort of dash this off. Not, I don't think he really thought that somebody would actually do it. Maybe he did, but it is at its best. I've done it a couple of times, and it's a great play to do. It's, it was last year in Beckett's. Yeah, it's yeah. it's a, uh, and I have taken some license from here and there uh, from it because you're not supposed to have any verticals, only horizontals, and all those kinds of things. But it's a, it's a great play. I mean, even in itself, you would think, well, something 30 seconds long. How can you call that a play? But I'm, I'm reminded of a, a great theater critic who, who went to see when Rockabye opened in the states. Who he went 
to see Rockabye, and he, he was doing a companion piece with, I think it was Catastrophe or something afterwards. Rockabye is about 13 minutes and 30-odd seconds long. He came in, saw Rockabye, went away for the intermission, and was about to go back to see the second half of the evening and thought, no, I am actually fulfilled with what I've seen. Uh, that 13 minutes was, was all I needed sort of thing. And then he came back the second night to watch Act 2, and I think that that's true. Uh, Beckett's work is full in itself. It's a full meal that way. That's an interesting way to look at it as, as a full meal, as music, as a meal. It's certainly very... There's a lot of sports uh, in Beckett. Yeah, uh, he, he loved athletics, didn't yeah, he? He was a scratch golfer, wasn't he? Uh, he was a cricketer. Uh, cricketer played rugby. Yeah, uh, he's boxed. the only Nobel Prize winner in the, the cricketer's album. Uh, there you go. Uh, but uh, even with that, uh, there is a certain, there's a playfulness in sport and a competitiveness in sport that you find in things like Endgame. Uh, certainly between the exchanges between uh, Ham and Clove, it, there is an element to that of sporting. And there's lots of stuff packed into Beckett. Now, that's very interesting considering Tom Stoppard, mm. one of his successors. Stoppard may not like, may not be a sportsman, but he loves games. In mm -hmm. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, they're always doing the logic yeah. games. Would you say that would be a Be Beckettian? That sounds odd. Beckettian uh, lens? <laughs> a Beckettian influence there on him? Would you say that was that sort of a trademark of Beckett's variety of the absurd was this gaminess? Uh, that's, uh, certainly there's an influence there. There's a line there. I think Stoppard makes reference to it a number of times in public statements and so forth. Mm -hmm. I think it's, it's very important. Pinter, obviously, had huge influences from Beckett. People draw on Beckett. The thing that I find so interesting about the Bikettian, what I call the Bikettian lens. It's a bit like calling yourself a, a Star Trek fan, <laughs> but a Trekkie. Um, but the thing I find most interesting about it is that it's a way of looking at the world, and even though there are things in your life that you, you can have despair over, or you can, you know, feel the doldrums, it's a way of picking yourself back up and laughing at the absurdity of it and pulling yourself forward. It's a great balance between hope and despair. One of Ham's opening lines, it's my favorite line in, I think, in, in plays, really, is can there be misery loftier than mine? And I think, what a sentence, because can there be, if you take the first part of that, that's hope. Can there be misery? That is such despair. Loftier, higher. Can there be something higher than mine? And takes it back to the personal. That's all baked into one line and one of the first lines of the play. That's an extraordinary sentence to me. And all of Beckett's work is like that. You know, when you look at play that's come and go with 131 words, uh, there's the great letter exchange that he has with his editor, and he he's fighting over these 131 words of this play. And that plays another 15 minutes, maybe in length. He finally writes to the editor and he says, great success. I removed a comma. And I think, you know... It, it's like Flaubert. I took six months holiday. Yeah. I wrote the best <laughs> sentence. What was the other one? There was another James Joyce who said, uh, I couldn't write today. Uh, all I could do is gardening. And Beckett responded, well, at least you've got gardening. <laughs> so uh, That's a relationship in and of itself, Joyce and Beckett. But maximalism to minimalism, that's an especially well, interesting... Well, a master and servant as well. I mean, the ham-clove relationship, if you want to look at it that way. Really? I mean, well, Beckett, I think, from what I've read, certainly about well, Beckett's Joyce life. Did go blind. Uh, certainly Beckett looked at Joyce as someone he would ultimately need to surpass, like he would need to break free of the influences. And I find that interesting. He, early on in the relationship, there's uh, letters and notes and so forth where he describes how he understood at that point that Joyce was somebody he would have to get past beyond. They quite, you know, enjoyed each other's company, but they had great conversations where nothing was spoken. They would just sit there in silence for 45 minutes and then somebody would say one, one sentence and then they would go for another 
45 minutes. One thing about Beckett and Joyce, you know, great Irish writers. I, I've, I've read some of Beckett and I've seen, I've never seen Endgame perform, but I have seen the filmed performance of it with David mm, Lewis. Yep. And they almost always seem to use an Irish brogue. As you said, the cadence being so important, you say that there's a certain connection between the Irish, not necessarily accent, but the... It's the rhythm. The, pe- the rhythm. There's no question. Birth uh, was the death of them, as I say. Dig waiting for Grove, even. Uh, I saw that in London in 93, I think, by the Dublin Theatre. They came and did a whole, or maybe it was 99. It was 99 series in the Barbican. Um, and they had Irish actors. And that play sung like nothing else. It was it was astonishing just how the cadence of the language lifted that play further than I'd ever seen it before. Happy Days is a bit different because he wrote it in English. Uh, oftentimes he wrote in French first, then he would do his own translations, mm-hmm. all the rest of that. But with Godot, because it was such a new play, it really, really sings when you have it. It's kind of like sometimes when you see Shakespeare done by British actors. You don't know why it sounds right, but there's something about British doing Shakespeare that has some extra kind of, at least I find, uh, there's something in that accent, there's something in the way they speak and the rhythm of the language that just adds a level, uh, a dimension to the place. Same with Beckett. In terms of then Irish playwriting, is there a conduit to Beckett through Martin McDonough, would you say? As in, as someone, is McDonough's considered a more accessible playwright, he's certainly mm. more contemporary. If one was trying to get into Beckett, would a good conduit be McDonough's work? Again, considering the, the black sense of humor, the frequently amoral protagonist in Bruges, arguably, is mm. being considered to be this almost Beckettian sort of purgatory, or would there be a different conduit to Beckett you would recommend for one who's not versed in the plays for one who's not doesn't have a background in it's theater. a you know that's a great question i actually don't have a good answer i only have an experience that i had with endgame because my 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 history with beckett is kind of funny when i was in my first year at university of guelph i went to part of an intro theater course we went to toronto toronto free theater was doing and i, I saw waiting for Godot. it was the first play i actually saw hated it i thought it was uh, it was i didn't get it i didn't understand it thought this is the strangest when thing is this Godot guy yeah, gonna anyway, show up what is happening nothing happens twice you know between act one and two and so, you know, I put it aside, and then I, I was an actor in those days, and then I came to Vancouver. I did my master's here at UBC. So I was in my second year, and my advisor, Ernie Zaslav, said, you should read this play, and he gave me Endgame. And I was not a man of great wealth, shall I say, and I was living down in Hastings in Maine, which is a very challenging area of town, but certainly the Bikettian world exists. There's an echo there of that area of town where you find Bikettian characters, really Bikettian lives in some ways. And I was upstairs in my seventh floor in the tiny little bachelor, and I was reading it. It was raining outside. I remember it quite well. And I started reading Endgame. And I thought, I, I was getting that same visceral reaction of, this is the strangest stuff I've ever read. I don't get it. I don't see what's happening. And I kept reading it. And I got angrier and angrier as I was reading it. And then I got to the very final speech of Clove, where he says, you know, they said to me, yes, yes, no doubt. Uh, that's friendship. You found it. If, you know, if anyone's listening wants to pick up a copy of Endgame, look at Clove's final speech. It's the most beautiful speech in the world. And I wept, actually, in that little tiny place while it was raining outside and I thought this is the most it all became clear to me in that moment about what he was trying to achieve with Endgame and there's something about that experience of Clove and Ham that affected me deeply and I remember thinking this is what I have to do this is the work I have to do this is the you look for a playwright as a director and I thought this is the one I want to work with it made sense to me I understood it I understood the humor of it all in that moment I understood the great pathos the great struggle of humanity the great struggle for people to reach out and talk to people and 
and to have relationships and all that that's involved with. It is a struggle. It's absurd at times. It can be beautiful at times, and it can be uh, sad at times. And I think Happy Days has all... The thing I love about Happy Days so much is that it has all of those elements in it. You are on a great roller coaster ride with that play, and it takes you down. It ta- it's terrifying. It is beautiful. It is sad. It is joyous. It is hilarious. It has all of those elements, and I think from that point of view, it's a great play to work on, it. much like all of his work has influenced me in that way. You know, I don't usually tout my own shows, and there's always this, but I have to say that this one, for me, I have a little receipt in my bag from a book that I bought on Happy Days, and it's dated 2001, and I knew when I picked up that book I was going to direct this play someday when I, uh, when Beverly was going to be of the right age to play it, and I have to say, for me, with shows, typically I don't, I don't do many, because I'm the assistant dean of the Faculty of Arts, but it's a busy job, <laughs> but uh, all of the things, all of the pieces came together for this show, and I'm quite proud of it, and I think she's terrific, I think Joe Prosek, who works in the library, who's also an alumni, we've all worked together for many years, we're like a little jazz, jazz ensemble, the three of us, it's just been a great experience, and I, I really look forward to opening night. All right, as do I. It was great to have you in the studio. Thanks. Cheers. Thanks, to you, Tierra. I'll be back when I have to record some craps last tape. <laughs> that story at the end there is rather ideal for me when I want to talk about something like Endgame. Yeah, that was, that was perfect. It was I a great interview, it. and what a what a great man to talk to. I really look forward to Happy Days uh, coming to UBC very soon. Yeah, it's on tonight. It's on tonight. Yeah, yeah. very soon. And now a word from our sponsors. Mm. Want to know what's up at UBC? Read the UBC. It's only the largest student newspaper in Western Canada, and it's written and edited entirely by UBC students. The UBC is your source for on-campus news, culture, and sports. New editions come out every Monday and Thursday. For breaking news, as well as amazing videos and blogs, check out ubc.ca. Tired of the gender binary, gender policing, or just want to speak your truth? Join CITR's Gender Empowerment Collective. This group of radio makers is all about centering the voices, issues, concerns, and experiences of women-identified, transgender, intersex, two-spirit, genderqueer, gender nonconforming, non-binary, and gender-fluid folks and allies. Anyone can join, no experience necessary. Like the Gender Empowerment Collective on Facebook or email volunteer at citr.ca. Our show, Babe Waves, airs Thursdays from 5 to 6 and features music, interviews, events, news, commentary, basically anything we care to talk about. See you then. I faced it. I have Alzheimer's disease. My diagnosis has let me get on with my life my way. The more we learned about my grandfather's dementia, the more we could face the future and make plans. My husband Tom and I spoke to our doctor right away. I have Alzheimer's, but it doesn't have me. I faced it. So can you. For more information about early diagnosis, visit alzheimer.ca. Last night, I left the bar. I was thirsty, and I don't drink wine. I was desperate. I needed blood. I turned to the only place I could. The only place that could possibly help me. Hello, can 
Canadian Blood Services. Hello. I need some blood. A. Positive or negative, it doesn't matter. I'm sorry, we're all out of A positive and negative. Would you like some O instead? No. No, that won't do. Thank you. Good night. Save me. Save yourself. Give blood voluntarily. This message was brought to you courtesy of the Canadian Blood Services and CITR Radio 101.9 FM. Okay, that was a pretty amazing ad, I just I, want to point that, out. It was, got some production value. And uh, we're going to discuss a great play by a UBC creative writing student behind mm-hmm. the door. But first, we actually want to review a, 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 a similar, I'd say, related um, VIF occurrence. Mm-hmm. by a CIT, a former CITR member, actually, Jason wow. James, mm-hmm. which is Entanglement um, with Thomas Middleditch. Now, I interviewed Mr. James a little bit recently, and he has some very interesting things to say about what has been called this magical realist film about depression. Take a listen. Hello. Uh, this is the Arts Report, and I'm Jake Clark, broadcasting from the unceded Musqueam territory of UBC campus, and I'm joined here today by filmmaker Jason James, who has brought us his new film, Entanglement, at Vancouver International Film Festival. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Before and we start, I want to tell my story that I used to have a radio show at CITR. Yes, please. When I was in high school. I grew up in North Vancouver and we used to, some friends and I used to drive here. Our show was on Friday at one or two in the morning. We play weird jazz records and punk rock records, but we also unfortunately made the bad choice of making prank phone calls on the air and we got kicked off. So this is the, the last time I was here was, was then. Hey, okay, so here's a little Ornette Coleman, here's DOA, and now let's prank call someone. Yep, that was it. Like that, that was the whole format of the show. Genius. Not, not right. gonna lie, I would listen to that. <laughs> Also reminiscing that when I came to do my station tour to be a volunteer here, Nardwar gave the tour, and that was kind of entertainment in itself. He's an icon, man. We can now connect CITR to Snoop Dogg three times over because of that. (laughs) That's pretty impressive. And Lil Yachty. That's why I dwelt on Snoop Dogg there. (laughs) Yes, Lil Yachty. I I, I don't don't get him. I I really don't. With the red braids and everything, it's like, I'm still a thug, but I wear a clown nose while I do it. (laughs) That's right. It's got a great name. And he just, uh, I just read he had a pop-up pizza shop in L.A. So, Did he know? Yeah, that's how. That's a man of the people. Yeah, you never know, right? Uh-huh. Little Yachty's Pizza is like Little Caesars. <laughs> He's totally ripping off the crazy bread. There he is, right? <laughs> Yachty bread. Speaking of names, actually, I, I read this on IMDb, and this is pro- possibly trolling, but they stated that your name is an amalgam of Jason. I'm serious, of Jason Robards and James Garner. Yeah, don't believe everything you read. It's, yeah. not, it's not actually true. I mean, how can you be named after someone for your last name, first of all? Well, I'm wondering if it was like a pseudonym. <laughs> no, that's hilarious. That's the second person that's asked me that about, you know, in this sort of press thing I'm doing for this movie. And uh, a friend of mine just put it up on IMDb as a joke, and I never took it down. Do you admire Jason James or James Garner at all? It's like, <laughs> Jason Robards? Sure. Jason Robards. <laughs> uh, Jason Robards, James Garner are amazing people to be named after. So it's not so bad. I'll take it. Acting legends. Yeah. So, you know, speaking of, of acting, I guess most of the audience at UBC and CITR will be familiar with Thomas Middleditch from Wolf of Wall Street or from Silicon Valley. And he actually has roots in Vancouver. Was that part of the rationale for the casting? Did that come up at all when you are making the film? Thomas Middleditch is, is an amazing actor. He's the star of this movie, Entanglement. He was actually my first choice for 
the role. You know, I'm casting three movies right now, and when you're casting movies, you know, the three movies I'm casting right now are have been a year-long process. And with Thomas, he was the first person we went out to. He really responded to the material. He and I hit it off, and pretty shortly after, we were making a movie. When I'm casting films, I like to watch interviews with actors just to see who they are innately as people. And I remember watching this one interview with Thomas at the Sundance Film Festival. He was doing some press for a movie called The Bronze, and the interviewer asked her some, some inane question like, you know, what's your favorite song? And he started talking about Neutral Milk Hotel's King of Carrot Flowers, and he just started bawling, he started crying. And to me, that was who the character of Ben is, this guy who's just so emotionally fragile, who's just so on the edge, and he's either going to break down and cry or break down and laugh. And um, to me, it was just like, I'm just trying to look for actors that have a little bit of the character within them. You've described Entanglement as a magical realist film about depression, and one of the influences being Eternal Sunshine of Spotless Mind. Sure, yeah. Is it sort of a Jim Carrey thing from that one? Is that <laughs> is that kind of what you're aiming at there? When I'm making a film, I try to watch a lot of movies and, and pull references from everything. I'm not trying to make something that is exactly like something else. You know, I think this movie is its own unique thing and yeah there's a lot of different reference points that, that go into this film i think her is another great uh spike jones film her is another great reference point that's a dark topic obviously depression shocker of all shockers and your previous film that burning feeling is mm -hmm. a romantic comedy mm -hmm. about a womanizer calling his girlfriends to say he has an std there's a certain very dark element to both of these films that are have been described as romantic comedies as well would you say that's incipient in the genre or is that something you'd like to add is that something you want to see there. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to make movies that talk about difficult or darker subjects, but with a light touch to try, you know, I think it's a little more true to real life, you know. Things are funny and sad and weird and romantic, and, you know, I, I like playing in that kind of gray area where you can take something that is so real that many people have to deal with in terms of mental illness or certain diseases and, like, what is the comedy in that? What is the truth in that? And, you know, to me, it's I really love Billy Wilder. On the surface of these lovely comedians films but underneath there's like there's darker themes at play well that's a very dark film as a comedy now the reason we put entanglement alongside behind the door which mm -hmm. i think is a very cogent reason to jump from one to another we, the full interview will be up on mixcloud by the way yeah it's a really do. good interview uh, definitely check out mm -hmm. entanglement coming to vif yeah. you know it, it has you know the local quality and um yeah. And also Thomas Middleditch, so if you like that. And also if you like a really uh, heartfelt movie about mental illness, definitely go check it out. And yes, we will review it after we see it. Yeah, it's going to be, it sounds really good. It, it sounds very interesting. He compares it to Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Like, magical realism is, is fun for me. I like seeing magical realism. I actually movies. really do love that film, uh, Eternal Eternal, uh, Eternal Sunshine, I don't love. Is I the actually thing. like I, it. I really liked it. I, I, I liked it. Yeah. I, I liked it. It's, it's I, my favorite Charlie Kaufman script is adaptation. Hmm. But I mean, that's you get two of Nicolas Cage. <laughs> I mean, there's no way that's not going to be entertaining. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Now, um, let's talk behind the door. Yeah. It was a thesis workshop play mm -hmm. by a graduate MFA creative writing and theater student Megan Andres, and we had a. Um, it was very different from what I expected considering the interview that we did with Megan uh, last week and That's right, yeah. I thought it was also very illuminating I'm really happy that we talked to Megan because she specifically uh, states that in the interview she was writing this play to help kind of like confront and face a lot of the stigmas related to mental illness especially those um, considered with schizophrenia so I thought it was really great that we got to talk to her because it really helped me frame 
my understanding of the characters and understanding the situation and even challenge these notions that I previously had to make me kind of understand more. Just to kind of recap the story of um, mm-hmm. of Behind the Door, there are three uh, children. Yeah. There's um, Ayla. Ayla is the youngest. Yep. Uh, then, Gabe is, like, how much older would you say he is? I would consider him maybe, like, five or mm-hmm. more years older than Ayla. Yeah. Ayla's played by Tina Georgieva. Um, J.C. Roy plays Gabe. Their older sister, who's closer in age to Gabe, mm-hmm. is Kat, played by Julie Disher. And uh, Valerie Hoy plays their mother, Marta, who is suffering from schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. So Ayla and the other two uh, siblings, Mm -hmm. Kat and Gabe, are not fully related. No. Um, They're half-siblings. Well, Kat and Gabe are full siblings, and Ayla is their uh, half-sister. And Ayla is her mother's caretaker, more or less. Mm -hmm. And she... Her life suffers because of this, because she's a student, she's a college student, and she keeps t- making a long commute, like it's over an hour commute, to take care of her mother, who is incapable of taking care of herself. Their father's dead, mm-hmm. uh, and a large chunk of the play consists of them trying to find a way to uh, help their mother through their father's journals. And um, the, this, the, the, this play is, is an emotional roller coaster, because the first act ends with a pretty overwhelmingly... Um, negative impression of the situation and a sympathy for Gabe and Kat, who are both very uninvolved in their mother's life. Like, Gabe's on disability. He's... He hurt his back. He, he hurt his back. Mm-hmm. Uh, the characters point out he is probably not fit to necessarily claim disability. He's probably riding the system a little bit. Um, drinks like a fish and plays a lot of video games, whereas... Um, Whereas uh, Kat is just trying to be normal by any means possible. Mm-hmm. Her idea of quote-unquote normal. Yeah. And the way it goes is that by the end of the first act, you um, you think Ayla is... You think Marta is just an incredible drain on these people's lives. You think Ayla is um, je- ni- a nice person but naive. You think that Kat is put upon but gener- but reasonable. And you think that Gabe is just kind of a loser. Mm-hmm. Um, and you may have a more negative opinion of him. Uh, that I, I will say right now that J.C. Roy as Gabe was, I think, an outstanding performance in this. This was a this was essentially a table read. I did not get that impression from the acting at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, not at all. It was really well done by uh, mm-hmm. everyone. I do have to commend uh, uh, J.C. on his uh, mm-hmm. portrayal. That was really great. As well as uh, I really liked Cat too. Mm-hmm. And the second act, what it does yeah. is it really plays around with um, the, especially of Kat and Marta because mm-hmm. it brings out a side of Marta that makes you more sympathetic to her because it doesn't for one moment make it look like this character isn't incredibly disturbed like is it dysfunctional person but mm-hmm. also points out that there are good moments to that and eventually the thing is you end up probably feeling the greatest antipathy towards Kat who refuses to acknowledge this at all whereas Gabe eventually does mm-hmm. The thing for me, this yep. reminded me of two things. Uh, I reviewed The Levy last year with Christine. Yeah. You look up that episode if you want to hear the review. I wasn't too sympathetic to that portrayal of mental illness, mainly because that character I cared significantly less about. Okay. Because that character was intentionally, was I, in my view, intentionally harming their family, or at least being dismissive of them. And the other thing it reminded me of was a film called Clean Shaven, mm-hmm. which is a Canadian film starring, uh, I think it's is Peter Green is the actor. He was, he was in Pulp Fiction, The Usual Suspects. And um, 
as a schizophrenic, and the film's stated aim is to convey what it's like to be inside the mind of a schizophrenic, and it does this through audio, through visuals. It's incredibly disturbing, 80 minutes to watch. The end of the, the first act, which is portrays Marta having a, a full-blown episode. episode. Yeah, an episode. Does what that movie does, with audio especially, and it's incredibly vivid. It's, uh, it, it, it's horrific to watch. The thing that struck me the most strongly, and I mentioned this to you mm-hmm. at the intermission, was that um, the father, who is dead and has left Ayla taking care of someone who is incredibly mentally ill, is extremely anti-hospital. And Ayla has this opinion. And Kat later on authorizes the hospital to take custody of Marta and almost has her committed. Now, I'm the son of a medical professional. And I've been surrounded by medical professionals my entire life. So the thing is that what that reminds me of when people say, no, do not take someone to a hospital when they have a severe problem, whether or not it's Christian scientists who are going to let their kid die of, an, uh, die of appendicitis because they believe that God should, that prayer should heal you rather than medical care, or if it's someone who says hospitals make you crazy uh, and will not take someone who needs a lot of help to... A pl- to, to a place where they can at least attempt to provide that, that strikes me as being incredibly short-sighted and pretty unforgivable as a, for the perspective of a caregiver. And I understand with mental health, there's a great deal more ambiguity than physical health. But for me, if you're, if you're having full-blown schizophrenic episodes, if you have these episodes, and what this starts out with is a very negatively biased episode, and that bias affected me with my own bias there. Mm-hmm. But... If you're there, I mean, you shouldn't be taking... I mean, in the old... In the very recent history, mental hospitals used lobotomies and insulin shock to try and treat these things, both of yeah. which are horrific they're not, abuses. Yeah. But they are no longer in use. Another thing they mention is that uh, electroshock treatment causes her to have seizures. And I may want to point this out. Electroshock therapy is painless if administered properly and is beats the hell out of taking Thorazine. Because electroshock therapy is a series of small instances in a very small space of time, whereas Thorazine screws with your brain chemistry on an immense level. And we and there's, of course, multiple ways to argue this. I'm not a healthcare provider. But electroshock is something that is very heavily mis- misapprehended. And I don't... And I, a character like Ayla would misapprehend that because she has a bias against medical professionals, but that kills my sympathy right out the gate. So I had a very hard time sympathizing with Ayla for most of this play. Mm-hmm. Well, for me, on the other on the other hand, I could understand where their character was coming from, especially with there's a lot of um, um, I would say difficulties in treating mental uh, illness, especially if the you know the people who are you know taking care of someone who is mentally ill don't know like the correct way, like. And it's really hard to figure out a correct way because there are so many different ways that can work and not work for certain individuals and their, you know, episodes. Like with the mother, the only way to get her to calm down was playing a specific song. Yeah, Blue Heaven. Yeah, which would, you know, put her from a high anxious level to a lower anxious level. And it can be really scary for someone to deal with that. And I think that's, like, the reason why the two older siblings, Kat and Gabe didn't want to deal with it because to them, their mother was somebody who was unintelligible. They couldn't understand her. They were scared on what she could do and what she would, she might do. And then, you know, because of an episode, whereas Ayla, because she was with her mom, because she was able to figure out what works and what doesn't, 
work, she had that kind of um, that weird, not really weird, that kind of like Balance, anger, like a, a sort of towards sense her, of yeah, yeah towards her other siblings. Like, why don't you try to at least understand, you know, her methods? Because I also I, I agree with that. Maybe like medicine doesn't work for everybody. I do think that people should, you know, get themselves checked by a medical professional before they try to do any like homeopathy or anything like that. Well, and here's homeopathy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, the thing about it is that the line Ayla repeats the most is she's never been violent. And Gabe, towards the end, tells a story about being locked in a closet that was duct taped shut and breathing through the gap in the bottom. If someone ha is a fully blown schizophrenic, if someone has a mental disorder that overrides their life, you can never say that in good certainty. That someone has never been violent does not mean that they will not be for most sane people. And we can quibble over the definition of sanity all you want, mm -hmm. but the point is that I'll, if your rea perspective of reality is warped, you may not realize you are doing harm, and that has nothing to do whether or not with whether or not you are a violent person or not. And I think that was like a, a big fear that they had, and that you know she was going to be violent, that she'd be taken away from the police. Which, which struck me as a pretty reasonable it's fear. Pr but at the, at the same time, you know, as you mentioned, some people aren't really in control of their actions. And let's say that you have somebody who's suffering from like really extreme hallucinations. Not in the case of Marta. I think Marta was kind of like on the lower for me from what I saw. It wasn't oh, as well, full blown as other, you know portrayals of mental illness were like other portrayals make them like you know look like they're really really well the contrast clean shaven in clean shaven there's never that certainty in clean shaven the plot devices you know that peter winter the character uh played by peter green funnily enough is a danger to himself and others like he is a threat to people and the main point of the movie mm is whether or not he actually has done something that makes it reasonable to suspect this or whether or not it's just his apprehension of it. A lot of questions in that are not elaborated on. And this one, because it's looking in on mental illness rather than looking out from it, for most of the play, uh, does a pretty good job of conveying that effect. I think better than Clean Shaven does because Clean Shaven is not a movie that will make you necessarily question how people treat mental illness. It'll make you question what leads mentally ill people to do things. But the thing is, like, you mentioned that people will do things, but something happens and, you know, the police are called. And unfortunately, the individual who has the mental illness in question can't, like, they don't see police. They don't see law. They just are in an episode, so they see, like, horrific, like, crazy, like, demons, and they're trying to get away from them. That's, like, you know, what happened with the scene where Marta has, like, that very strong episode at the end of Act 1. Um, assuming that, you know, these people aren't, you know, you know, hurt in any way in the process of, you know, being with law enforcement, where do you think, like, a person who has this illness, like, belongs? Like, do you think they belong in prison? Do you think they belong in a mental institution receiving treatment? It should be the latter, right? Well, I call it the Harvey rule. If someone is happy and functional, then no, they, they, they deserve to be exactly where they are. And those two things are often interrelated, but not necessarily. So if someone is dysfunctional, like if they're a harm to, you know, honestly, if they're a harm to themselves, that is, that's their prerogative. If they're a harm to other people, and I mean a direct harm to other people, by virtue of being dysfunctional, but are happy where they are, then yes, they should probably be moved. If they are unhappy and dysfunctional, which makes them a danger, probably a danger to both themselves and others, depending on the circumstances, because you cannot predict this. You can't, like a, a significant part of the definition not the definition, but at least the situational understanding of mental illness is this sense of unpredictability. And part of that, yes, I think 
owes to a prerogative not to institutionalize, certainly, but at least apply treatment and apply treatment consistently and vigorously until either some degree of functionality, not necessarily happiness because you can't control that, but some degree of functionality can be at least expected of someone. And I think that's like hard to kind of tell, like, you know, the idea of who, who, it is it's can, almost impossible. Yeah. What can we, you know, perceive as functional or dysfunctional in a person? And do we have that, you know, choice to say that this person is functional, this person is dysfunctional. So I think with, um, cause by the end in, 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 act, two, yeah, in, 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 in act two, we see Marta as what Ayla has been kind of talking about, that she's a caretaker, that she's a mother, that she takes care of me too. So seeing her in like a better day where she doesn't have an episode, it, that surprised both the audience and the character Gabe. That chilled me to the bone, honestly. It mm. did. Because um, knowing Gabe's history there, like again, being locked in a closet, having a brief slit at the bottom as a, as a child, that point makes me realize that, you know, if you let insane people into your life, and let insane people into your life is not a good way to phrase it because that implies blame. Yeah. But if you do this, then you're going to be waiting for that other shoe to drop, If you, especially if you know that they are insane or if you believe that they're insane, depending on how it goes. Mm. To me, that was, the ending was, I found it unnerving because you cannot tell. And Gabe offers to step in for ALS so that she can continue her life, that she can live. Uh, but I, I I failed to find that reassuring. And I don't know how you would be able to find it reassuring because mental illness is a lifelong battle. And they are not, they're not taking the, mi the mitigating steps mm -hmm. that would be selfish for them to take, which are the ones that would also in turn make them more able to neutralize the problem. This play will really reveal which side of this debate you... I don't want to say care more about, but where you're going to see the damage. I, I guess so. For me, I, I just don't oh. think that it was, yeah, I just don't think that it was kind of like a, a battle. It's more of a tough hurdle to get through together, but I don't think it's really a battle. Anyway, that's that's the reason why we have like different opinions. Let's, we, we have a lot of other stuff coming up, so let's, you know, talk about that after, you know, a short, mm -hmm. you know, a few messages. And now from a word our, from our sponsor. Sponsors, that's right. That was good. Would you like to get updates on your smartphone in an emergency, even if a cell tower is down? It is possible if the FM chip is activated in your phone. Visit freeradioonmyphone.ca to see how you can get involved by contacting your carrier and signing our petition. And welcome back. Come Small to the Allard Prize uh, for International Integrity Award Ceremony. Tomorrow. Thursday, September 28th, featuring Glenn Greenwald who broke the story of U.S. whistleblower Edward Snowden and co-founded The Intercept. It will celebrate an Egyptian human rights lawyer, an Azerbaijani journalist, and a Brazilian prosecution task force. Visit tinyurl.com slash allard2017 to reserve tickets. Tune in every Monday from 4 to 5 p.m. for a little bit of soul with your host, Jade Park. A little bit of soul plays primarily old recordings of jazz, swing, big band, blues, oldies, and Motown. 
join us every other Wednesday from 6.30 to 8 p.m. for Sam Squanch's Hideaway with your host, Anita B., as she plays all Canadian music with a focus on indie rock and pop. And welcome back to the Arts Report. Yep, I'm still Jake Clark. I'm still Ashley Park. What's up? Well, there was a play I saw a little bit ago that I really liked, and I just want to give it a quick review because I forgot to do it last show. No, you didn't. You were saving it for this show. No, I was saving it for this show. That's That's right. right. After the run is expired. Um, This show was Mr. Foote's Other Leg, which was actually written by a man named Ian Kelly who you may know as Hermione Granger's father from the Harry Potter films. For real? Yeah, yeah, seriously. This was a blast to watch. It was a very fun play about language and theater, and it regarded, it was at the Jericho Arts Center. Mm -hmm. It was about a comedian named Sam Foote. This would have been around the time of the American Revolution, and it was almost Stepardian in its view of history. The acting was very good. There was, um, Foote was played excellently by, uh, oh, it's just... It's, oh, what's uh, Kaz Leskard? Sorry, I just trying. I was trying to remember if I had to pro- the name was pronounced differently. And Foot was a comedian who actually lost a leg, mm-hmm. and that operation scene is the end of the first act. It is a vivid scene. It is pretty brutal because medicine at that time was terrifying. Okay, it was pretty horrific and you get to see a lot of historical domain characters you get to see joel garner as george iii as a prince not as a king um frank barber actually uh, who was who became samuel johnson's manservant and inherited his estate was foot's servant before this played by russell zashiri and his story is very interesting because barber was a freed jamaican slave and he um is brought in there's a very interesting scene where the where george uh, Garrick, who was an actor at the time, he was very influential in resurrecting Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, it would be foot. We are talking about doing a comedy version of Othello with two guys in blackface in front of it. Like, it, it it's, it's a really deliberately awkward scene, and it is very funny. Um, like, to, to give you an example of the humor here, um, uh, foot is talking to Garrick, and... He goes, do you know what the difference is between English and every other language? We have the word can't. And then Peg Woffington, who is an Irish actress, mm-hmm. chimes in, no, that word also translates to Gaelic. And he goes, no, can't, Peg, cannot. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of thing you're going to deal with here. It's very rich. There's a lot of references that are great if you're into history or into theater, history of theater. Um mm-hmm. One thing that is notable is that it does hit the high point with the operation because it, it they try to top it, but they do even make the joke at the end of the first act, how are we going to top that in the second act? Mm-hmm. And the first act, the second act is kind of depressing. It is because you see Foote sort of, he's forgotten now and he was kind of lost by it because a lot of comedians at the time were considered very low art. Yep. He was basically considered worthless and he was thrown he was he was he was he was basically discarded it's it's rather sad it is a brilliant play i actually spoke with simon webb who played the surgeon john hunter a very good scotch accent i may add and they uh they mentioned that as a play about language part of it was just seeing it's it's a scattershot approach how many jokes you'll get and every maybe one ten people will get every joke but those people are going to feel very thrilled by it and Mm -hmm. that was sort of the aim for it it was an excellent play. I was glad to see it. 
Was at the Jericho Art Center. Check them out. They're awesome. Yeah, they have a lot of great stuff coming up. They do. And well. so right they should, here people should definitely check out Jericho Art Center. Now, uh, I understand that we're on for Angels in America, too, to see the second half of Angels in America, which I am psyched for. That's right. Angels in America has already opened. If you haven't checked it out, go mm-hmm. check it out. It has already very rave reviews. It's at the Stanley, right? That's right. It's Angels in America Part 2. They are, um, it, it is a critical hit from what I've uh, seen. And it's playing until October the 8th, so people should definitely check it out because mm. by this weekend, it'll be October the 1st. Speaking of which, by this weekend, if you're free on Friday from 6 to 9, there is Drop the Mic at the Audane, hosted by our lovely, sla- uh, well, among others, the Slam Poetry Club. I still never know what they are, actually, an association. It's a great thing. It's free. Check it out. Ditto Soul Night uh, tomorrow, 8 to 10, at the MOA. Mm-hmm. Spinning some grooves. I'll be there, certainly. And... I hear you had a conversation with two Kates about activism. That's right. The first of those is Kate Evans. (laughs) That's right. Well, I really didn't didn't get to have a conversation with Kate Evans, but the Chan Center is going to have uh, Kate and Kate's work. This will be on the 29th of September, so this week. Very interesting. It's called Threads from uh, uh, the Refugee Crisis, that's the book that she uh, came up with. Uh, Kate Evans is a UK-based illustrator and writer, so she actually did illustration, kind of like comics, about the, uh, the the refugee crisis in France's Calais refugee camp. And mm. they'll have projected images from her book as a backdrop, and there will be musical accompaniment by Iranian-Canadian hand drummer Hamin Honari. So Evans is actually going to share a reading fall by thought-provoking panel discussion. So it's going to be very interesting. Again, it's called Kate Evans' Threads. It's Frontlines of Refugee Crisis Revealed Through Powerful Graphic Novel Images, Reportage, and Music, and a discussion featuring an award-winning author and activist. This is at the Chance Center, September 29th, 7.30. We are doing a special ticket giveaway. Ooh. That's right. So if you share and like our post that is live right now on our Facebook group, The Arts Report on CATR 101.9 FM, if you like it and share it to your Facebook profile, you will be in the running for a pair of free tickets to the event. Isn't that awesome? Chance Center is a great venue. This seems like a really thought-provoking and eye-opening event. If you are really into something like that, check out our Facebook like and share and we will actually let you know if you're the winner all right and the second point uh second conversation we actually have uh recorded is a conversation with kate bird that's right the co-creator of city on edge this is a museum of vancouver special exhibit that will be opening uh this week september uh, 28th actually and it's about vancouver activism all throughout the years this interview is gonna play us out and hopefully you guys enjoy. This is the Arts Report. Yep, we don't have proper time to have the full interview, but it will be on our Mixcloud, as will the other interviews today with Jason James and, of course, uh, Gerald Vanderwood. And uh, as usual, it's been a blast. Yeah, thanks. Cheers. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Arts Report. I am your host, Ashley Park. You're listening to CITR Radio 101.9 FM, and today we have a very special interview for you. If you haven't heard, the Museum of Vancouver will be exploring our city, yes, this city's turbulent history with protests in City on Edge, a century of Vancouver activism. Basically, it is a collection that the museum has curated, especially in regards to Vancouver activism and all the different protests that happened within your local city, and I actually have 
the co-curator, Kate Bird, available to speak with us today. Thank you for being on our show, Kate. Oh, it's my pleasure. Kate, so let's kind of just get right into it. Can you tell us about what this exhibit uh, means to you and why you wanted to make an exhibit like this? There's also a book called City on Edge. It's published by Greystone Book. So it's a collection of photographs taken by photographers at the Vancouver Sun in the province over the years. I worked with the Museum of Vancouver on an exhibition last year called Vancouver in the 70s, so we had already planned when I was working on the book that there would be an exhibition, so I collected almost 650 photographs Mm -hmm. at the museum of protests over the past century. And what made you want to write the book in the first place? Well, when I was working on the book Vancouver in the 70s, there were so many protests and I said at one point, wow, this book could be all protests because there were so many in the mm-hmm. 1970s. And so from that, I kind of thought Vancouver really has a rich and long history of protest activism from the early years in primarily labor protests, mm-hmm. the Vancouver being a port city with a resource-based city with loggers, longshoremen, fishermen. Uh, those were industries where there was a lot of labor activism. We have a long, rich history of riots. Mm -hmm. So underneath Vancouver's kind of genteel exterior, there's this long history of protest activism. It says you're also going to draw on your experience as a retired Pacific newspaper group librarian. Can you tell us how that experience shaped your exhibit? Yes, I worked with the photograph collection. I was one of the staff there for 25 years, Mm -hmm. and I did a lot of photo research and working with the hard copy collection and later the digital image archive. So I was used to, you know, finding these fabulous images Mm -hmm. of protests, which of course are very dramatic in their own right just by the subject matter. And also they're just beautiful photography by the photojournalists at the papers. And what was it like working with the Museum of Vancouver curator, Vivian Gosselin? Oh, it's just fantastic. We worked on the show together, Vancouver in the 70s, last year. We had a great time. She's wonderful to work with. We already knew in the the second book that there would be an exhibition as well. So I was able to know that because it's 100 years instead Mm -hmm. of a decade that we covered in the 70s book, so many the images are basically projected in order for us to be able to show this magnitude of photographs, 650 photographs, and to give you that real sense of this deep history that we have. And in the exhibit and in the photographs um, themselves, do you guys like arrange by timeline? Is it arranged by events? If so, you know, which ones did you have like the most like, whoa, like wonder? The book is organized chronologically. Mm -hmm. So the first protest in 1900 and the latest one is the 2017 anti-Trump Women's March. But in the exhibition at the museum, we have decided there are themes that come out of the the photographs being mm-hmm. labor, government, anti-government, pretty much First Nations, social justice, environment, and hooliganism that covers off on the riots. There's also another theme of students, young people, but that's incorporated into those six themes. It looks like you also have a few events to go with City on Edge. Can you let our listeners know what they are? I'm also speaking with three other authors about City on Edge at the Vancouver Public Library on October 5th at 7 p.m. And there are a number of other events, and those are listed both on my website, katebird.ca, and also on the Greystone Books 
website. Mm-hmm. It looks like on October the uh, 5th, there is a Wapikoni mobile film screening. I, I just thought that was very interesting, especially with what you mentioned about, you know, the First Nations that are included in this right. um, exhibit. Yes, yes, there's a whole uh, theme from that. And also there, at the Museum of Vancouver on November 30th, there'll be a panel talking about archiving activism, and there's different groups that are coming to represent people in the city who collect documents and artifacts of Vancouver's activism. How does that actually kind of work? I'm not saying that, but how does one kind of start archiving activism? Well, for instance, uh, Ron Dutton is a librarian and archivist, and he started collecting documents and posters, all kinds of memorabilia from the gay rights movement in Vancouver Mm -hmm. from the early days. And it it takes somebody like Ron to start saving these types of documents, which he has now archived, the BC Gay and Lesbian Archives. And it's his initiative. There's other ones, for instance, at Simon Fraser University, they have a collection of anarchist and um, 1980s kind of punk posters and there are these collections around the city bc labor heritage center they do oral histories of labor history so there are these fascinating collections that value the the history of 